Well, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, we have a perfect sermon uh, text for us to meditate upon. So if Thanksgiving really is a day of delighting in God's goodness and favor and resting and and feasting uh, in the abundance of his gifts, then this sermon text is perfect for us. Here we see that the Christian is to be at rest. Let me ask you, are you at rest with God? Do you soak in his grace and rejoice that your life is now found in Christ? Or do you ride the roller coaster of ups and downs, some days delighting in how you've lived and feeling close to God, but then other days feeling dejected and seemingly far from God? Chances are this reflects all of us at times, correct? But it need not be so. And Paul shows us why. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence In the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do give us your word, and that in these words we see a striking reality. Um, We see the great gain that is ours in Christ, and the righteousness that allows us to rest in him. Open our eyes more and more to this truth. May we hear the gospel afresh. May we um, preach it to ourselves each and every day, we pray. Amen. Those of you who have flown a lot, don't you tend to like totally tune out the flight attendant once you see that seatbelt being held up high in the air? You know the safety briefing's coming. You've heard it a thousand times before. As soon as, that, uh, as, soon as you see the briefing beginning, what do you end up doing? You start rummaging through the seat back, looking for something, I don't know what. Uh, you put your headphones in, start listening. You get one last text out before they say you have to shut everything down. 
We feel that we know the safety briefing. Why? Because we've heard it repeatedly. We know to put on our own oxygen mask first and then our kids. We do know that that thing you're sitting on, that seat, actually can be used as what? A flotation device. We thankfully have heard it all before, enough that we feel as if in the event of emergency, we'll know what to do. In our passage, Paul is doing something similar. In verse 1, he repeats uh, our, our call to rejoice, as he's done throughout this letter so far. But then he says this, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Evidently, what Paul is about to cover isn't new territory for the Philippians, and chances are it's not for us either. Paul has taught the same teaching before. It's the gospel. And he says it's good for the Philippians to hear it again. Like the flight safety briefing, there is something about the gospel that is good for us to hear over and over. Paul says it is safe for you. The Greek word means to be fastened securely so that you're not in threat of danger. And there's a danger that threatens every Christian. If we fall victim to it, we lose our joy. We become restless. The danger is what we call legalism. If you're new to the church, you haven't heard that word, don't let it scare you too much. But simply put, legalism is an approach to life that says, I must live out the law of God so that I can earn his acceptance. Now, as Christians, we say, no, no, I didn't earn my acceptance before God. I came to faith in him and I have peace with him. We, but we look to the past and we see that. But in our daily lives, we, we tend to think legalistically that I must somehow, I've I'm saved by grace, but I must work now to prove myself. You know, pretty much all of the religions, uh, other than Christianity, are legalistic. They say, do this or do that, and then the deity will be pleased with you. In the early church, false teachers taught that in addition to believing in Christ, you also had to practice certain Jewish requirements like becoming circumcised, ouch, uh, and celebrating, you know, Jewish feasts and holidays. In other words, faith in, faith in Christ isn't enough. You also need other religious performances. Today, Christians aren't so much being told to get circumcised or to celebrate Jewish holidays, but we are nonetheless bombarded with legalistic beliefs. We feel as if our relationship with God just cannot be based on grace alone. Surely we have to do things to keep God happy with us. And so we're all prone to live our lives on a roller coaster of religious performance. If we do well, then God is pleased and he will grant us answers to prayers. If we don't do well... We forfeit blessing today, and we must redouble our efforts tomorrow. Does this sound or feel familiar to your life? But this is not the life that God brings us when we come to trust in Christ. In fact, the gospel repudiates the roller coaster life, which is why Paul is quick to repeat this gospel message to the Philippians. Paul shows them and us that the gospel isn't just for the day in which you come to faith in Christ. It's for every day of the Christian life. 
Therefore, let us preach to ourselves the gospel daily. As we look at that, we're going to divide our time into three areas. Um, first, Paul is going to point us to the danger of legalism. And then Paul will show, that, show us that the gospel calls us to lose it all in order to gain it all. And then lastly, we'll see that we are to live as those who are found in Christ. First, the danger of legalism. You know, if church history teaches us anything, it's that legalism perpetually threatens the church. The medieval church, for instance, uh, they made up this system of penance as a precondition of divine forgiveness. More recently, some Christian traditions uh, identify as true Christians only those who don't drink or smoke or dance. The first legalists in church histories are what we've come to call the Judaizers. We see them in the New Testament. They're false teachers that asserted that a Gentile convert must, um, must believe in Jesus, but also do the works of the law, become circumcised, celebrate all these feasts and holidays. Then you're declared righteous before God. You know, and to this day, part of how we're wired as human beings is that we believe that our performance earns rewards. So Paul warns that the early church, um, the early, he warns them with great earnestness. Three times in verse 2 he says, look out. Now he isn't referring to three separate groups of people. It's all one group of people. They're like the Judaizers. But he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You know, in ancient days, dogs weren't like cute little cuddly things that you kept under your arm or you brought into St. Ambrose and, and uh, sat down to eat with you, right? Um, Jews did not keep dogs as pets because dogs back then were wild scavengers. And in turn, Jewish people actually used the word dog pejoratively towards Gentiles. Um, Non-Jews... Non were viewed as scavengers and dogs and unclean. Paul continues, but he's actually, Paul is actually calling them the ones who are unclean. And then he calls them evildoers and those who mutilate the flesh. And Paul is using a, a play on words here in the Greek. The, the English word circumcision in the Greek is peritome. Peri, which means to, to uh, encircle. And tome, meaning to, to cut. Um, but instead of calling these people the peritome, he calls them katatome, which means to cut up. In other words, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Under Old Testament law, a priest who had a mutilated body part was no longer able to even serve and worship uh, in the temple. So... Paul has turned the tables on these Judaizers and their legalistic approach. And then he contrasts them with the true household of the faith, those who are truly accepted by God. In verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In the Old Testament, the people of God, males at least, were to take on the sign of circumcision. It was the cutting off of the foreskin of an eight-day-old Jewish baby boy. It marked the child off as a member of the covenant community. 
But it wasn't the outward sign that saved the child. Rather, the outward sign was meant to point to something inward within the person. A heart that was circumcised. A heart that is set aside by God for God. All throughout the Old Testament, we read words like this. Here's just some from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Here's what God says, this wonderful promise. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. God gives his people new circumcised hearts. Paul is saying that the New Testament people of God are the true circumcision. Christian, have you ever thought of yourself that way before? That God in his grace has circumcised your heart to mark you off forever as his own? That he's planted his Holy Spirit in you so that you may truly be one who worships by the Spirit of God. Paul also writes another mark of those who um, are the true circumcision or those who glory in Christ Jesus. Now the Greek word here can also be translated to boast. The Christian has become one who boasts in Christ. We recognize that Christ alone has secured our salvation. There's nothing we can add to it. All we can do is glory and boast in Christ. And because we, we see that only Christ is worthy of our boasting, we no longer place any confidence in ourselves, earning God's acceptance. That's what Paul means when he says the Christian puts no confidence in the flesh. He's not talking about literal physical flesh here. The word flesh is a word that Paul has used many times in Scripture to describe what? Our fallen nature. It's that prideful remnant within us that believes it really can work its way to God. This is why you wake up mornings and have a wonderful prayer time, commit your day to honoring the Lord, but then by the time you show up at the office, you've already let out a few harsh words to a co-worker. How about you? Do you see this tendency towards legalism in your life? Is your Christian life like a roller coaster of where you're pleasing God and then not pleasing God? Do you feel far from God on bad days and super close on the good days? Do you compare yourselves to others and consider yourself better or worse? These are just a few signs that we are putting our confidence in the flesh. And confidence in the flesh leads either to boasting in self or mutilating of self. It does not lead to boasting in Christ and rejoicing. And it's also a sign that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Paul says we need to be on the lookout for legalism in our lives. Next, Paul shows us that we need to lose it all in order to gain it all. Paul used to believe that his religious performance, and he was a perfectionist, gained him everything. It was only, though, when he lost it all that he really gained it all. In verse 4, Paul writes, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, And then he's like, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then um, what we see here is is before coming to faith in Christ, Paul was a very zealous religious man. He did everything by the book. And he felt that he was such a good person that surely God was pleased with him. Look at his pedigree and his performance in verses 5 and 6. Pedigree. 
circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's a good tribe. There's only one other tribe, Judah, who didn't bail on the king. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Most likely meaning that he, uh, you know, he, he wasn't a, a convert. You know, he's got Hebrew blood. And then as to the law of Pharisee, this is performance. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. The Pharisees had laws around God's laws, so that by following these laws really, really well, they knew that they were blameless. Now, we lack the time to look at each of these points, but suffice it to say that most of the Jews in Paul's day would have looked at Paul and thought, that Paul, he came from the perfect family tree, and look how amazing he is at, 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 at the Jewish life. Surely, if anybody is approved by God, it's Paul. Paul was confident that his life was in order. He didn't need God's grace or mercy. In verse 7, he calls all of his achievements what? Gain. But then he speaks words that would have caused his fellow Jews to pull their hair out. What, are you kidding? Paul says that all this gain, this life of impeccable legalistic rules following, Paul says he now counts it as law. Are you crazy? Look at verse 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, every few months... uh, Actually, it's more like every six months. <laughs> I clean out the refrigerator. I'm the one in the house that does it. Maybe you do it too. And when you're cleaning out the refrigerator, things kind of look good from a distance, you know? But, you know, then you hold up that container, open container of sour cream, and you look at the expiration date, and you're like, can I trust this? It's three weeks past due. Nope. You chuck it in the trash. What I'd purchased with cold, hard cash or on Visa, on credit, either way, um, was now only fit for the trash. Paul says the same thing regarding his religious life. All that he had purchased with his slavish devotion was actually worthless rubbish. The Greek word for rubbish here is skubalon. Yes, it can be translated garbage or trash, but usually it's translated with the word dung. Or excrement. The works of our flesh produces excrement. Now notice this. This is extremely important. If you get just one thing out of this message this morning, it's this. Paul isn't saying, I count my flaws as dung. Paul isn't saying, I gave up my life of drunkenness and chasing after girls and I got straight with God. No, Paul abandoned what he valued most. Here's a scary thought. Our perceived goodness can keep us from God. In fact, there's a shocking truth. 
What keeps people from trusting in Jesus isn't their sins. It's the imagined worth of their virtues and good works. You know, you don't have to be religious in a traditional sense to suffer from this. You know, many people say today, perhaps you hear it regularly as I do, people will say, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. But the truth is, Every human being is religious. We just express it differently. Modern author and philosopher James K.A. Smith has written prolifically on this subject. He, He points out that at our fundamental core, we aren't merely thinking, rational beings, but we are loving beings. That in the words of Augustine, our hearts are restless. In other words, we are meant to love. And to seek out something lovely for our lives to rest upon. Be it the arms of a lover or some God. In the end, we are all worshiping creatures. And what we seek is righteousness. That is a, a rightness that fills the voids in our, of our, flaw, uh, that, in our lives. That, um, that make up for all of our flaws. That bring to our life um, something that makes our life worthwhile. One way people pursue righteousness is through our culture's standards of righteousness. For some of us, that means justification by recycling, or going green, or being tolerant, or working for a better world, or a debt-free Africa. These are all good things. But the thought is, as long as I contribute my part to these wider social issues and values, then I'm a good person, and therefore righteous. In other words, I base my worth on how well I measure up to these social, cultural standards. Do you see? That's religious performance. We're all religious in some way or another. We're all trying to find the righteousness in our lives that we can rest in. Now, back to my point. It's not our gross sins that keep us from God. It's it's our perceived goodness. And it doesn't matter if that perceived goodness is derived by going green or by following some deity's rules. Either way, we become confident in our own record. We have no need for God's uh, Son, Christ, to bring us his mercy and salvation. So Paul doesn't say, I gave up a worthless past. He says, I gave up all that I valued most. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so here's what becoming a Christian really looks like. It's coming to the realization that all hope of self-salvation must be abandoned. It's coming to the realization that all this time, and with all these religious deeds, I've actually been avoiding God. I've been on some effort of Self-salvation. Becoming a Christian means at some point you come to realize that the law of God, as good as it is, was not meant to be given as a means of earning God's acceptance and favor. See, the law was never to be an end in itself. The law was given to point beyond itself to Christ and our need for him. Not just though on the day 
you became a Christian, but every day of our lives, the law of God is meant to point us to the sufficiency of Christ in our lives. The law was meant to cause people to say things like this. Yeah, the law of God is good and desirable. But who on earth could truly live up to it? The law is meant to cause us to turn to God and say, Will you be merciful to me? The law of God was not given to make us boastful in ourselves, but rather boastful in Christ. So there's a time in Paul's life when he came to see that all of his law-keeping was really a liability. It kept him from truly drawing near to God. It's only after we are willing to lose all that we've gained that we can truly gain it all. And when we're willing to lose our righteousness, we are able to gain Christ's righteousness. Look at verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, belief, trust in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The law was never meant to provide us with the righteousness we need in order to be in a relationship with God. It was meant to point us to a need of a Savior, the one who offered up himself as a sacrifice for us. That is what God has done for us through his Son. God gives us his righteousness if we would but just see our need for it. You know, earthly religion says, be righteous and you will be accepted. The gospel says, You have been made righteous already by the work of another. And you are already accepted. Religion says do. The gospel says done. Perfect peace with God cannot be something that you earn, but it can be given to you as a gift. Righteousness from God. God's very righteousness can be yours by faith. That's the gospel. Elsewhere, Paul wrote these amazing words. If you're taking notes, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that's Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. We lay down our, our seemingly wonderful record of being human beings. We throw it in the trash can. We throw it on the cross of Christ. Christ takes all that, pardons us from it, and gives us his righteousness. It's not ours. Luther calls it an alien righteousness. It's not ours, but it is ours. Simply by trust and faith in Christ. God is a good God. He's willing to give you all that you need. That your life may be complete and that you may be at rest here on earth today and in the age to come. So Paul models for, this, for us this great exchange that must take place in our lives. We must see that our record of do-gooding is really an attempt to avoid God and save ourselves. And so we must lose it all that we may gain it all. So we covered the looking out for legalism and losing it all to gain it all. Now let's look at living as those who are found in Christ. 
Perhaps you're thinking, Mark, you know, I came to faith in Christ years ago. I know the gospel. Now, I thought this sermon is titled The Gospel for Daily Living, right? Can we get to that, right? Well, remember who Paul's writing to. He's writing to Christians in Philippi. And he's happy to repeat this gospel message because it's a safeguard. He knows that we tend to think that our relationship with God rises and falls based upon how we perform each and every day in this so-called Christian life. And so we have days where we feel like we've blown it and we got to make amends. we got to make up for what we did. And we also have days where we like what we see and we feel confident, well, God must really be digging me today. Paul says, hold on. He says, this is not the Christian life. We're not saved by grace and then maintained by works. No, we're saved by grace and we are maintained by God's grace. Our confidence can never be in anything we do, good or bad. Our confidence and therefore our boasting is always in Christ. In his book, Transforming Grace, it's on the book table. I recommend every Christian reads it. Jerry Bridges writes these words. He says, We act as if God's grace only makes up what our good works lack. We believe God's blessings are at least partially earned by our obedience and our spiritual disciplines. We know we're saved by grace. But we think we must live by our spiritual sweat. He goes on to correct that by saying, the most conscientious, dutiful, hardworking Christian needs grace as much as the most dissolute, hard-living sinner. All of us need the same grace. We all need the same amount of grace because the currency of our good works is debased and worthless before God. That's what Paul is trying to press deep into the Philippians' minds. When you fall short, don't pick up the law and work yourself back into God's favor. Instead, remember all that God has done for you in Christ. God has taken you and placed you in Christ. Here at Grace Church, we talk a lot about this theological term called union with Christ. When you trust in Christ, uh, it's not from a distance. God has placed you into Christ's life. We have died with Christ. We have ridden with Christ. We are hidden in Christ. And look what he says in our passage in verse 9. It's beautiful. And be found in him. In our hymn of response, we're going to sing these lyrics in a few moments. We're going to, our souls are found in him, and of his righteousness we partake. A Christian is someone who is found in Christ. The word found here is in the passive voice. Paul didn't go find himself in Christ. This is a work of God for Paul. God put Paul in Christ. And so if Paul has a bad day or a good day, what does he do? He finds himself in Christ. (laughs) That's where his righteousness is. It's where it always has been and always will be. He doesn't look at his doings, what he's done today, whether it was good or bad, and boast or cry. He preaches the gospel to himself. I am found in Christ. All of his righteousness is now mine. It's a gift. 
I never earned it, so foolish me to think I could have lost it, and I need to make up for it. Some of you here really need to hear that. Your Christian life has become drudgery. And you, you feel all this guilt and shame. You never seem to be able to be at rest. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. Be reminded, you, you're, you never saved yourself in the first place. You weren't saved by grace. I mean, you weren't saved by works, you're saved by grace. And you live by grace. And so on those days when you fall short and give in to temptation, when the old fleshly you rises to the surface, what are you to do? Well, you're not to pick up the law and redouble your efforts. You're to look where God has permanently placed you. Find yourself where you are now found in Christ. Preach yourself the gospel again. Then rest in his grace and rejoice. Preach to yourself that you were never saved because of your good record but actually in spite of it. Preach to yourself that the law is good and it shows our ongoing need for Christ. Preach to yourself that you you no longer have a righteousness of your own, but you have that of God himself. Preach to yourself that you've gained Christ and, and that can never be taken away. Preach to yourself that you're now found in him. And then do what? Go find yourself there. And point to Christ and say, sorry, Satan, I'm found in him. <laughs> and then rest and rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, the, the, the gospel is too good to be true. <laughs> it gives us something we never could have on our own. A life of rest, a life of being found in your presence, a life of belonging to you, a life of not having to earn our, our acceptance daily, and the pridefulness that comes from that, or the defeat that comes from that. But rather, we are now able to rejoice, genuinely rejoice, uh, because we're found in Christ, and your righteousness is now ours. May that really sink in. May we be a people who know the gospel um, like we know the flight attendant when the seat buckle gets lifted up. The, may we know the gospel so well that we soak in it, we preach it to ourselves, and it allows us to be at rest, we pray. Amen.